And welcome to episode 77 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This will be the double star episode. I guess we should have done a two-part episode for this one. But anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers. That means we do astronomy just for the fun of it. And this podcast is how we share the fun. And today it's double the fun. I was thinking about those old gum ads. Uh, with other people like you who love to look at the nighttime sky. So today, Shane, you're going to do a, a sort of presentation that you've given in, uh, in the astronomy class that, uh, that I teach at the university. And uh, uh, you're going to talk about the double star observing. And uh, yeah, we've had some questions from listeners and we're getting some observations from listeners on double star observing. And uh, you were saying before we started the recording that... Uh, that this is something uh, that, that you've at least been doing for a long time. So it might uh, bear a, a better and deeper explanation. And I'm, the last thing I'm going to kind of say before I hand the reins over to you is that uh, I'm really not much of a double star observer. Like uh, I know the main ones like, uh, you know, Alcor Mizar and the Big Dipper. I know Alberio. I know um, some of the ones in Capricornus there that, uh, uh, Tico was observing and Kepler were observing and, and others. Um, and that's, that's, and, and Polaris and, and I think, uh, and Terry's and a couple others, but, but that's like it, you know, um, I really would consider myself a pretty much, uh, a beginner double star observer, but I'm going to say this, I'm just thinking this off the top of my head, um, for my, um, article in the observer's handbook, um, from last year, we actually did an observing session and I put some double stars in and we observed them together. And, uh, and that was amazing. That was like the most double star observing I'd ever done in a night. And, uh, and that was so much fun seeing those kind of like, uh, like little, almost like Christmas decorations hanging off another star. So with that, I'm going to kind of tie it over to you. Right on. Yeah, double stars is not something that I started observing uh, when I got into astronomy. Um, when I got into astronomy, my plan was really just to observe planets, and that was it. Um, I was really interested in seeing Jupiter and Saturn uh, and Mars and maybe a little bit of the moon. And then, you know, I, I just assumed before I bought a telescope that you could look at those any given night of the year. Um, and as we all know, that's not true. Um, you can only see those uh, the planets at various times. Uh, so, you know, I thought I better, you know, I need to start looking at other things. Uh, so I got into deep sky objects. Um, but it, it started, my, my fascination with double stars started um, probably, I think it was about six or seven years ago when my wife and I moved into our current house. Um, I was fortunate enough to come across a, a good price on a sky pod or, uh, you know, it's a little backyard observatory uh, plastic thing and uh, put a telescope in there. And again, as most people know that listen to this podcast, observing galaxies, uh, nebulas, uh, uh, any, any of the deep sky objects for the most part, they're not very good from the city if you're a visual observer. Um, so I started to do a little bit of research on other things that I could maybe look at where light pollution uh, isn't as much of a factor. Uh, and that's when I got into double stars. Um, uh, so, you know, maybe I'll, I'll kick this off, Chris, with a little bit of like, why would you observe double stars? Because let me tell you, my, my perception of these things uh, prior to actually, you know, digging into them a few, maybe like I say, six or seven years ago, 
my, my perception was, man, that sounds boring. <laughs> you know, um, when, when you look at stars through a telescope, you don't really see, you know, any detail. They don't change in size. Uh, you just see more stars when you look through a telescope. And, um, you know, at that point in my observing life, uh, you know, galaxies and, and nebula and, and all that other stuff is far more interesting. Um, but uh, when I, when I started to, you know, I guess dig in or look into double stars a little bit more, um, it really, it really started to appeal to me. And now I have quite a love of them. Um, you know, the, the uh, it's estimated that about 80% of the stars in the sky are actually not singular stars, that they are part of a multiple star system. Um, now the common reference for those in amateur astronomy or astronomy in general is double stars. But when I say double stars, I'm really referring to multiple star systems. It, it could be two, it could be three, it could be six stars um, that, are, that are a part of it. Um, the reason why I like to look at these things is um, some, some of these uh, groupings have really interesting color contrasts. Um, you know, color is sort of a fleeting thing through a telescope when you're just using your eyeball. Um, the images that you see uh, of nebulas and other things often have, you know, outstanding color and We've talked about some of those reasons in previous podcasts. Um, but when you look at, you know, a nebula uh, with your naked eye, you know, most people at best will see a little bit of greenish on like, you know, some of the brighter nebula, but rarely do you see any other color. And most of the time they just are, you know, kind of a shade of gray. Mm -hmm. However, with, with double stars, if you get a system that has, you know, blue and orange and, you know, white stars in there, uh, it, it, it's quite beautiful and the color becomes very apparent. Um, mm -hmm. So I like that. Um, some of them are just interesting alignments, you know, like they, they form interesting shapes. Um, but uh, the, the other part that I really, really like about uh, double stars is it, it's a giant test in a way. Um, it, it really tests your optics. Um, you know, how good is your telescope? How good are your eyepieces? Um, if, if you're, pushing your, your equipment to the limit, you know, in terms of observing like really close pairings or, or pairings that maybe have really opposing magnitudes, you know, one real bright star and then one fairly dim star, um, which also then tests your observing skills. And I think it actually makes you a better observer um, uh, when, you, when you become more experienced with double stars uh, because you really you really start to uh, notice all of the fine details around singular stars, um, which is, you know, kind of another level of, of visual observing. Um, and then also you can use double stars as um, fairly decent indicators of, of seeing conditions in the sky. Um, a famous one is the double-double in Lyra, uh, which is not visible right now. That's more of a, you know, summertime constellation. Um, the double-double uh, is, is two pairs of basically uh, two identical pairs that are in the same field of view in most telescopes, but they're pretty tight and you do need good seeing to see those. Um, so, you know, if you are unable to split them on a given night, you know, that'll tell you that, you know, the seeing probably isn't very good. Um, and then a, a couple more reasons why you may want to observe them. One I already mentioned is, is they're light pollution friendly. Um, that's really why I started was, uh, I can observe them in my backyard in the city and the light pollution really doesn't get in the way. Um, 
And then the last one that I'll mention here is there is an opportunity for some citizen science uh, with double stars. Um, not only have I neglected double star observing in my observing career, but in general, uh, there's a lot of double stars that have been neglected. And one of the biggest um, databases is the, the Washington double star. Um, I think that's yeah, Washington double star database or, or yeah, you association. Is that right? Yeah, uh, they have a neglected list of double stars. And, and what that means is, is a, a big list of, of doubles that haven't been observed or appropriately measured in a period of time. I think it's like 100 years or I don't know exactly what all that criteria is. Um, and they encourage like amateurs like us to observe these double stars, accurately measure the separation and their uh, angle of alignment. Um, and then send it back in and, uh, you know, correct some of the um, measurements that were taken in the past. So that's mm -hmm. kind of a neat thing too. That sounds really cool. Yeah. So, um, you know, you and I talked a little bit about where to start. So I thought it was, you know, that was kind of an appropriate place is, is why observe these things. Um, a little bit about the history of double stars. Um, Mizar in, in Ursa Major was the first recorded double star observation that I'm aware of. And it was by Castelli in 1617. And, um, wow, you know, that's, I, that's super early because Galileo only really pointed the telescope to the sky or the night sky in 1609. So yeah, that's just really yeah. like a few years later. Huh? Yeah. Now what, what kind of in, or surprised me, I guess, about the history of double stars is, um, my, my sort of ex expectation or, or, or assumption was that, you know, when, when kind of a new class of object is uh, first discovered or observed, that that would open the floodgate to, you know, a lot of interest and a lot more observations. Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to double stars, not so much. <laughs> um, so Castilli, 1617, has the first recorded double star observation. Uh, over the next 101 years, only nine more double star systems were observed, which, so, you know. I might be able to shed some light on this. Like I said, okay. I'm not, not a double star observer, but I'm a, uh, an observer and observer um, of the history of astronomy as well. So the way that, that these individuals, from what I understand, and nobody knows exactly maybe what they were thinking or how they were observing exactly, because none of us have that kind of uh, privileged information. Um, but it seems to me anyway, at least, that what they were doing is they were looking at the night sky and then um, seeing what they could see with their eye and then taking a look at those same things through the telescope. Um, not so much the business of like sweeping around with the telescope to make discoveries. And you can actually see how, how that would apply here where like Mizar and Alcor are, are visual to the unaided eye and then they point a telescope at it. Um, but whereas many of the stars that are doubles you're just, I, I think there's not many that you can see with your unaided eye. Um, although like um, Tycho did have um, several and I, and I know they're listed among the first uh, double stars um, mm -hmm. there in Capricornus that he called, uh, they were like nebulous stars or something like that. And so uh, those, those were also some of the first ones I think that people uh, pointed a telescope at. But anyway, don't, don't interrupt you. This is very interesting. Really enjoying it. Oh, no. And uh, I always appreciate your, your knowledge of the history of observing. So please chime in with, with more of that um, yeah. to fill in some of these gaps. Um, 
So in moving ahead here a little bit, in 1767, uh, John Mitchell is the first astronomer uh, to suggest that uh, not all double stars were merely like line of sight arrangements, but that they actually revolved around each other under a gravitational influence. Hmm. And this is really important because that, that is actually the definition of a double star or a multiple star system is, is that these stars are actually um, in motion and they are revolving around a, um, uh, like a central gravitational spot. Um, so 16, sorry, 1767, this, this, uh, you know, concept, I guess is proposed. Um, but it's not necessarily believed or, or embraced at that point. Um, 13 years later, Christian Mayer, uh, completes the first double star catalog, um, with about 80 entries. Um, although at this point in time, nobody, uh, had a telescope that was able to prove that double stars existed beyond these line, line of sight arrangements. Um, you know, in order to prove this gravitational influence, uh, measurements would have to be, uh, conducted to, um, essentially capture some of this motion, um, happening. So advance a little bit further to, uh, 1803 and our, our good friend who comes up many times in, in the history of astronomy, uh, William Herschel, uh, proved that double stars uh, do exist uh, with that gravitational influence by measuring stellar parallax uh, with Castor in Gemini, which is kind of interesting. Castor is uh, you know visible most nights right now, or all nights really. Uh, it's a winter constellation, and uh, Castor is a, a you know a fairly um, good double star to try. It's not, it's not the most, it's not super challenging. A lot of telescopes should be able to split that. Um, however, just going back to the stellar parallax, um, it's so difficult to detect that its existence was greatly debated until 1838, uh, mm. when it was proven mathematically, uh, which is six years after Herschel's death, um, you know, which is unfortunate, but, you know, I think it, it just kind of adds to Herschel's resume of how great of an observer he, he really was. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so much is attributed to him. And, and uh, you know, he, I, I always think of Herschel as one of the, the pillars of, uh, of astronomy for what he was able to do. Yes, but we must not forget, and, and whenever Herschel comes up, I, I always have to chime in and say that uh, his sister, Carolyn Herschel, um, yes. really, they, they need to be almost synced up. And, and that's something that uh, more and more, I think, in, in the history of astronomy uh, has been trying to do, um, because really Herschel's observations wouldn't even exist without Carolyn Herschel. So uh, anyway, I, I just sort of chime in with that because she was, I think she was like the first uh, female uh, paid scientist in, uh, in, in the British empire. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, maybe just rounding off a little bit of the history here of double stars is, um, uh, you know, after the, the parallax confirmation, of course, double star observing continued. Uh, but in 1870, S.W. Burnham uh, kicked off what many think is the golden age of double star observing. Um, and what's really interesting about Burnham is he's kind of like you and I, Chris, you know, he, he was yes, truly when looking at the picture of Burnham here. I was thinking this guy looks just like Shane right down to the <laughs> bow tie and petticoat. Yeah. Maybe I need to shave the beard off for a the handlebar mustache. mustache that yeah. would suit you for sure. Yeah. Jessica may object, but uh, yeah, anyway, 
<laughs> what what uh, what I love about Burnham is he truly was an amateur astronomer. He he was a court reporter by day. You know, he had a day job and just loved the night sky, and and did an awful lot of astronomy at night. Um, so in 1906, he published uh, the Burnham Double Star Catalog, um, and it's still referred to today as BDS or you know, the Burnham Double Star Catalog. Um, but there's 13,665 pairs uh, documented in there, wow. um, which is, you know, an outstanding accomplishment, um, you know, for, for an amateur observer even today. Um, yeah. So, yeah, just to make those observations. Yeah. Little, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, this is um, not the same Burnham as, as per Burnham's Celestial Handbook or, uh, or, or by the Burnham that was writing for, uh, for some of the astronomy magazines there for a while. And this guy, he found a lot of comets originally, I think, as well. He was, he was uh, a real, like, I mean, he observed a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. Well, and a lot of these early astronomers, like comets, were, were, was kind of the way they paid the bills because yeah. there was often, you know, some rich philanthropist who would fund the discovery, you know, pay some astronomer $100 or whatever the amount would have been uh, per comet discovery. So these folks would often, you know, scour the skies, uh, you know, hoping to find some, some comets to make some money. <laughs> kind of like panning for gold. This guy looks like he might've panned for gold too. Yeah. Yeah. He probably was, uh, you know, on his way up to Alaska at some point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the history of, of some double stars, uh, or some of the prominent double star observers, um, you know, after Burnham, thousands of more double stars were measured and cataloged. Uh, to the point now where, like I uh, started off the, the podcast, you know, we believe or there's an estimate that about 80% uh, of the stars in the sky are multiple star systems, um, which is, you know, quite fascinating. So maybe I'll touch a little bit now on just the definition of a double star. And I, I kind of mentioned it during the history review there, but it's two or more stars that are connected by a mutual gravitational point. Um, uh, they'll rotate around a common center of gravity, um, and they all vary with, you know, the periods of time uh, that that takes. And um, some of them uh, are, are, because of this mutual gravitational point and they're, they're rotating around, some of them rotate at an extreme speed and are actual, uh, the cause of uh, variable stars. So, you know, a variable star is a star that changes magnitude over a certain amount of time. Some of them are periodic variables, meaning, you know, every 28 days, the magnitude will go from, you know, say five down to three. Um, and, you know, there's various reasons for why stars are variable, but some of them are because they are part of a double star system. And uh, as they rotate around each other, or around the gravitational point, from our perspective on Earth, we see one of the stars passing in front of the other. And then that changes the magnitude, the apparent magnitude of the system. Um, now, I'm not much of a variable star observer. Have you, have you ever gotten into that, Chris? I, I have not. You know, like there's sometimes where, you know, I, I know that some people who are variable star observers, they get really into it and then they kind of fade out for a while and then they get back into it again. But you know, I've never really gotten into it myself. Yeah. Yeah. Me either. Um, I, you know, one of our, uh, one of our good observing buddies that comes down to grasslands, um, uh, Rick Kuziak is a, a big variable star observer. And I think he's logged like, geez, it's, it's in the hundreds of thousands of observations. Of oh yeah. Stars, it's, it's or variable stars. I should say. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is really wild. 
Yeah. So there, there's also a few classifications of double stars. Um, so one of them is uh, what we would call just a naked eye binary or naked eye double star. Um, and this is obviously something you can just see with your, your eyes. And there's, a, there's definitely a handful of those up there. Um, now, uh, one of them that is often referred to is Elcor and Miser. Uh, but I don't believe that those are actually a double star system. Those are just a visual alignment. They're two stars that are close, but they, they lack that uh, mutual gravitational point. Um, but one that you could see uh, tonight, if your skies are clear, is in Taurus, and it's uh, Theta Tauri. Um, and that's a naked eye binary that, um, you know, the separation is great enough that you don't really need any optics uh, to see them. And uh, they're kind of a neat little pair. One, one of the stars is a yellow star and one is a white star. So you can actually, if you put some optics on it, um, I don't know if you'd see the color through a binocular, you probably need a telescope, um, but you should be able to distinguish a little bit of difference in star color there as well. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of variation in star color in the sky, but you do, I find anyway, that you need them to be fairly close to each other to actually like kind of notice the difference in color. You, you need that, that reference there to, um, see a white star beside a yellow star and then appreciate the, you know, the colors, uh, that you're seeing in the yellow star. Mm. Uh, next, uh, categorization, uh, is the optical binary, um, which I kind of touched on already with Elcor and Miser. Um, but M40, uh, is also another optical binary. Um, another real famous double star or, or you know, maybe incorrectly referred to as a double star is Elberio. Um, you know, two beautiful stars right beside each other. It's at the bottom of the cross in Cygnus. Um, one is kind of orangey, one is kind of blue. Um, but they're actually nowhere near each other in space. It just so happens from where we are on Earth that those two are optically really close to each other and sort of simulate what a double star looks like, uh, but they lack that mutual gravitational point. Um, so now we get into telescopic binaries or telescopic double stars. Um, so, you know, these ones, the, the distance between the two stars is, is um, not very, it's not wide enough to be a naked eye binary. Um, uh, a good example of that is Castor, which we already talked about. Uh, that's in Gemini. Uh, two, uh, two white stars. They're fairly similar in magnitude. And uh, the separation is uh, not too challenging. Uh, you know, I think most telescopes should be able to split uh, Castor. Um, and now, you know, I've talked a lot about double stars, but there's, there's a number of systems where there's more than just two stars that are a part of it. And, uh, those are really, really cool because this is where you can get into some, um, really interesting sort of, I wouldn't call them asterisms, but alignments of these stars. Um, and one that, uh, would be visible, well, probably a little bit later tonight. Uh, is uh, in Monoceros or Monoceros, or I don't know how you pronounce it. There's probably a few different ways. <laughs> um, and the multiple star system is Beta uh, Monoceros, and there's three stars there. Um, I don't know what I would describe that as, but they're sort of in an arcing line, and uh, they're all fairly similar brightness or magnitude, um, with the third star being a little bit further away from uh, the initial two. Um, that's so really sure. nice. Those are really nice ones. Sorry, I was muted there, but, uh, yeah, that, that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty cool. 
Um, a lot of the stars that I'll talk about tonight or the systems that I'll talk about tonight are all visible in the winter sky. So, you know, if anybody's listening, maybe write down a few of these and, and see if you're able to observe them and split them with the telescopes that you have. Um, so an interesting one, I talked about variable stars at the start of this. Um, there's a real interesting variable in Perseus, which uh, a couple episodes ago, we talked a lot about the clusters in and around Perseus. Um, the, one of the brighter stars in the constellation, Algo, uh, is an eclipsing variable. So this is a double star system where from our vantage point on Earth, uh, the companion star and the primary star rotate around this mutual gravitational point and uh, eclipse each other from where we are and changes the magnitude of that star. Now, what's really cool about this is, is the period. It's every two days, 20, 20 hours and 49 minutes, these two stars eclipse each other. So, you know, the rate of motion of these stars is, you know, unfathomable to me and, you know, uh, the, the scale of the universe and the speed of the, some of this stuff is really hard to comprehend, but every, you know, two days and 20 hours, the magnitude will change from 2.1, uh, to 3.4 during the 10 hour eclipse, and then go back to its original magnitude. Um, I've never actually taken the time to observe this, uh, to detect, you know, the change in magnitude, but, you know, going from 2.1 to 3.4, is significant enough that it would be uh, noticeable, I think, not only to the naked eye, but also through a telescope. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever spent time on that one, Chris, looking at ALGO? Well, yeah, I have looked at ALGO before, but uh, I, I, I don't think so. Like, like I said, I'm not much of a visual observer. Certainly, I've looked at uh, uh, Mizar and Alcor, but not ALGO. Yeah, yeah. For, for um, a, as a double. Like it, it's sort of the Elgol is the, and, and as you may mention, it's the best uh, pulsating uh, variable star. And certainly I've, that, that's the only really variable I've ever really watched. Um, but I've never tried to see the, uh, the double star there. Yeah. And I don't know if you would be able to separate them. Um, I, I think what all, you know, the appeal of Algo is that variable aspect to it, just to uh, be able to see the magnitude change every couple days, mm. essentially every two or three days. Um, you know, maybe too, Chris, something else I should talk about is how do you know if you've observed a double star? Um, so number one is you need to have a, you know, a list of double stars and, and know where you're looking. Um, and then, uh, a, you know, a little bit of an understanding of your telescope optics in terms of what is, what is possible with your telescope. Um, not all double stars are uh, observable with all uh, apertures. Um, you know, small aperture will limit you to the amount of double stars you can observe. But how you know you've observed it is if you split them, if you separate them, if you see blackness between the two stars, um, then you can say, you know, you've successfully um, observed whatever double star system you're trying to, uh, to see. Um, there's a, there's, Sometimes the, the observation, you, you don't get 100% of a split, like they might be just sort of touching. Um, you know, that can be considered a, you know, a form of a double star observation as well. But essentially what you're trying to do is, is get that separation and, and see some black space between them. Um, and, uh, you know, oftentimes that means throwing a lot of magnification at them if they're really, really close double stars. Um, so maybe let's talk about a few others, uh, that are out there. So there's the Miser and Elcor, uh, combo. 
again, those are, um, those are not an actual double star system. However, if you put a telescope on Miser, and this one, you know, they're a little bit closer, so you may need some magnification, but if you put a little bit on there, you will be able to split Miser and see that that's the real double star, uh, and it's not Alcor. Um, you know, Alcor and Miser are just a neat optical alignment. Um, uh, that, you know, the Alcor Miser uh, alignment is quite easy to see just with your naked eye. Um, colors that you can see. Uh, so you can see blues. Um, you can see some white stars. You may see some sort of yellow to amberish stars. So um, a blue star would be Spica in Virgo. Um, white stars are everywhere, but maybe one of the you know, brighter or definitely the brightest one is Vega up in Lyra. Um, our sun is a great example of a yellow star. Um, Arcturus and Booties is uh, kind of a orangey amber star. And then Antares is, uh, you know, probably one of the reddest stars uh, or best example of a, you know, a red star in the sky. Um, and those colors, um, you know, again, they, they become more apparent to me when they're part of a double star uh, system. Um, now, Alburio gets a lot of attention for its color contrast, uh, you know, the blue and the orange. But one that I think is actually a little prettier is in Andromeda, uh, and it's called Almac. And I think we actually talked about this in one of our observing report episodes a while ago, Chris. Um, but again, it's a fairly simple system to split. They're not super close. Um, the two stars are fairly similar in magnitude, mm -hmm. uh, but one has a real orangey yellow appearance to it. And the other one, um, you know, is kind of a nice white star. Um, but the colors are, are very rich and apparent uh, through a telescope there. And uh, I highly recommend uh, folks try to take a look at that one. Um, some other ones to check out. Uh, in Cassiopeia, there's Arcid is the named star. And this is a, uh, a three-star system. And all three stars are like kind of orangey to yellow stars and um, sort of uh, form like a loose triangle. Um, uh, and that's quite prominent right now in the sky. Again, most people should be able to find that one. Um, in Cepheus, there's Elfric. Um, which is uh, another telescopic binary. Now this one is, is going to, you know, start to add a little bit of a challenge. Um, the primary star has a magnitude of 3.2. The companion is 8.6. So quite a bit of a, a difference there in magnitude. Uh, however, the separation isn't too bad. So I think, you know, you should be able to, to pull this one in, but it starts to give you, um, you know, an appreciation for the, you know, the difference in magnitudes and, and um, some of the challenges that come as a result. Uh, and now the, I think this might be the last one that I have here in my list. Um, this one is a little bit more challenging and uh, this one may surprise some people uh, that it's actually a, a double star system and that's Polaris, mm -hmm. the, the North Star. Um, Polaris is, is a fairly bright star. Um, the, uh, oh, we just talked about this. I think the magnitude is something like, is it two, Chris? Do you remember? Or yeah. three? Yeah, it's yeah. two. It's like 1.97, I think, if I'm pulling a number right, out right. of the air. I think that's the number. Okay. And the, bin the binary um, companion star is magnitude nine. So similar um, to Elferk, uh, the magnitude difference is quite a bit, except in this case, 
it's even a, a greater difference. Um, but what's what makes these one or what makes Polaris more challenging is the separation is a lot less. So they're they're fairly close, and um, you know the brightness of uh, Polaris A can sometimes make seeing the companion star uh, a little bit more difficult. Um, and this is one where you, you, you may need a little more aperture or just a little more magnification in order to split these. Um, and this is one that, uh, let, me, let me read my observing note about this one because um, this one I found kind of interesting. So for the very first time when I was trying to split Polaris, um, I started off uh, at about 18 millimeters with my eyepiece, um, trying to see if I could split it and I couldn't. Um, so what I was using was a zoom eyepiece, which I highly recommend for double star observing because a zoom eyepiece allows you to quickly change your magnification uh, in case you need more. So what I did is I, I maxed out my zoom eyepiece. So it changed it from an, uh, about 18 millimeters uh, down to nine millimeter eyepiece. And right away I was able to split them. Uh, but what was interesting about this observation was um, once I knew where the companion star was, I backed off my magnification again to 18 millimeters and it was no problem actually to see the companion star at that original zoom focal length. Um, you know, it would, part of it was just being able to find out where the companion was, but you know, this is, this is kind of uh, what I referenced at the start of the podcast where I think that double star observing actually makes you a better observer is that every time after I saw the companion star, it just popped out to me every single time I've looked at Polaris since then. And this was, this was six years ago. Um, you know, just those fine points of light, your, your, your eye becomes, I don't know, you just, you become more sensitive to it or, or maybe just more aware of it is maybe a better way to put it that you, you start to see some of these things uh, appear a little bit, uh, a little bit easier um, and maybe a little bit more often. Like, if I'm scanning uh, clusters now, open clusters, um, it's it's amazing to me. Like um, you know, M45, the Pleiades, for example, it's amazing to me how many double stars there are just in that cluster. Uh, when you start putting some optics on it and some magnification, they they start to appear quite readily. And um, you know, in the past, I think I would have just overlooked a lot of that stuff because I, you know, again, I maybe I wasn't aware to of it or um, you know, really looking for that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, let me just do a time check here, Chris. I'm not sure. Okay. We're not too bad. Um, so maybe some observing tips here. Um, I mentioned one already, you know, the zoom eyepiece is helpful, uh, but it's not required. However, with double star observing, you're probably going to vary your magnification. Um, so, you know, having a few eyepieces handy, mm -hmm. uh, would be good. Um, you know, if, if you believe you've got the right star in your field of view and it's not, you're not separating it, don't give up, you know, just keep increasing magnification. And if that doesn't separate it, still don't give up, come back another night because it might be the atmosphere just isn't very good. You know, the seeing conditions may not be very good. Um, and you just need a better night in order to separate it. Um, so, you know, persistence is important. Um, I did find having a, I, I no longer have a go-to mount, but when I made this presentation, I did. Um, a go-to mount is kind of nice, actually, if you're observing in the city. And the reason I say that is um, some of these double stars uh, that you'll get into aren't super bright stars. So you have to either do some star hopping or um, if you have a go-to mount, you know, you just 
plug in the, the coordinates or the star that you want to look at and it should find it for you. And why I say that's kind of nice in the city is the light pollution does wash out some of the guide stars. So sometimes star hopping in the city is a little more challenging. Um, now, the last uh, little tip here that I have, um, you know, I might be a little bit biased because I'm a refractor guy, but I do think refractors are the best choice for observing doubles or splitting real tight doubles. Because um, uh, refractors usually give you like the, the tightest, sharpest view of a star. Um, because there's no central obstruction or anything like that to, um, kind mm -hmm. of add some distortion there. So for me, I, I, you know, again, just my opinion, but I do think refractors are your best choice. If you really want to get into some challenging separations, um, uh, you know, that's probably the way to go. Um, some observing logs. So if you're, if you're going to, um, uh, do a written log of your, uh, double star observing, uh, what I've done in the past is I'll describe the pattern of the stars or their alignment. Um, you know, if the companion is at say 11 o'clock, I'll note that. Um, but if there's multiple stars, I might try to describe the shape that I'm seeing. Uh, I like to note any color contrast, you know, if I see any color in the stars. Um, I also like to note if there's a difference in magnitude. Um, obviously the number of stars in the system uh, that, uh, that I see. Now, the next one here is a, I put separation estimate. This just kind of comes with time. Um, like if you look in a catalog um, and you know that with your telescope at a certain magnification, you'll get to know, you know what nine arc seconds looks like in terms of separation. Um, you know, over time, that will help you estimate uh, other separations that you see. And, um, you know, it's kind of neat to... Uh, learn that aspect of observing, you know, to, to understand how far apart objects are and, you know, what, what an arc minute is versus an arc second uh, through, through the eyepiece. Cool. Uh, what else here? So I shared one of my observing notes. Um, you know, here's another one. What was I looking at here? Uh, 61 Cygnus. Uh, so I said uh, at uh, 18 millimeters, um, I was able to do this, uh, the split. I was able to split them and that they were twins aligned vertically. Uh, both stars appear amber and are the brightest stars in the field. You know, so a simple log. Um, but for the sketchers out there, um, I don't know if there's anything easier to sketch than a double star system, <laughs> you know, because you're really just putting some stars on the paper and maybe, uh, maybe adding the color um, at some point. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, Chris, as, as the sketching expert here on the podcast, <laughs> um, have you ever considered, uh, like colored pencils for this aspect? Or, yeah, I think or... we were talking about this in, on, on the sketching list that, that I belong to, which has gone silent again. There's been nothing for, for almost a month. Um, yeah, I, I've talked to some people about doing this, What what it seems like a lot of people do is they do the sketch and then they put the color in. Um, using some sort of graphics program and that, but uh, that that's sort of beyond my skill level at this point in time. But uh, yeah, I, I would definitely like to get more into doubles at some point in time af after our session. But like I said, I, I really enjoyed the session that we had uh, uh, that time, uh, uh, me and you and, and Shane and, and uh, well, me, you, <laughs> Mike and Rick. Right. Yeah, that was, that was fun. Um, so I think I'll, I'll end off here with some resources. Um, so there's, uh, for deep sky objects, we're all familiar with like the NGC list. Uh, there's, there's Messier lists and many, many things like that. 
Uh, for double stars, there's the uh, Washington double star catalog. There's over 115,000 systems listed in there. Uh, there's the Aitken double star catalog. There's about 17,000 there. And uh, I already made reference of the uh, Burnham double star catalog, which has over 13,000 systems. Uh, so there's a lot of double stars up there to observe. Not all of these are visual. Some of these you do require, you know, uh, cameras or, or spectro some sort of spectrometer in order to uh, observe them, but uh, many of them are visual. Um, uh, some lists. Uh, so in the RASC uh, or RASC Observer's Handbook uh, that we're giving away, um, there's a, a list in there with 136 systems. Uh, the Astronomical League has a list of 100 systems. And then the one that I really like is the uh, Cambridge Double Star Atlas, uh, double and multiple star showpiece list. Um, there's 133 systems listed there. You know, all of these ones are visual. Um, you know, it's quite easy to see these through the telescope. I shouldn't say quite easy, but um, it's possible to see them through a telescope. Mm -hmm. um, so the two books that I'll leave everybody with here is the Cambridge Double Star Atlas. Um, it's a wonderful atlas. Um, it, it's coil bound. It's meant to be used in the field. It's a um, nice atlas anyway. I don't have a copy, but I know both you and Mike have it. And, uh, and I've used it on occasion. It's, it's a great atlas if people are looking for one. Yeah, yeah. And, and it doesn't just list double stars. You know, it That's lists right. all yeah. sorts of deep sky stuff, but with a variables. Focus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Double and uh, deep sky objects, like you said, plus the doubles. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, and... Um, the, uh, the appendix is huge on here with, um, I don't know how many doubles are actually listed in the appendix, but it's like, it's almost a hundred pages of appendix listing wow. details of the double stars in the sky, um, with some interesting notes. Uh, so within each constellation, um, it, it, they put stars beside like the showpiece, uh, double system or multiple star systems with some notes about, uh, you know, it's an AB system. So, you know, there's two stars. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. just reading one here in Sagittarius. The catalog ID is PZ6, whatever that means. Um, and the notes here are, are distant, uh, colorful, and extremely rare CPM double of MNG super, uh, super giants uh, within a rich field. Hmm. Um, anyway, wonderful Atlas. Um, the second edition you can still buy. Uh, it's around $50 Canadian. And um, another reason why I really, really recommend this is I've wanted this atlas for a long time. Mm -hmm. I wanted it before the second edition was available. Uh, when they released the first edition, um, they, didn't, they didn't print a lot of uh, 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 copies of it. Uh, again, double stars are not a super popular thing, I think, within amateur astronomy. So the first release sold out very quickly. And this was like a $500 book um, or atlas, the first uh, edition after it went out of... Uh, out of print. Um, so when they announced the second edition, I bought it right away. But this is one of these books or atlases uh, that, you know, when this one goes out of print, and it's no longer available will be worth probably hundreds of dollars uh, on the used market. So get one while you can. It's a great resource if you want to get into double stars. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to get into the citizen science aspect, you know, if you want to get into measuring double stars, um, and really understanding some of the science behind them, um, another book that I have that is great at all of that is uh, Observing and Measuring Visual Double Stars. Um, it's part of the uh, Patrick Moore's Practical Astronomy series. 
this book is still available. It's a little bit more than the Atlas. Uh, this one is, uh, I think, around $60 Canadian, but it's over three, well, it's over 400 pages of, you know, really, really good detailed information uh, about double stars. Uh, it really gets into the science of them, uh, mm-hmm. the astrophysics aspect of them. Um, really, uh, really interesting read if, if you're into double stars. Oh, very cool. But I think, yeah, I think that's about all I, I have to say. I, well, I, I anything got a question. Questions? I got a question here for you, Shane. I don't want to end up splitting hairs here, but what is your favorite double star? What is your absolute favorite double star? Maybe what is your favorite double star for a small telescope? What would be your favorite uh, double star for a larger telescope? Hmm. Well, I, you know, I go back to Polaris a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. Polaris is, you know, it's always visible in the Northern hemisphere, uh, which I like. Um, And I, I like testing smaller telescopes on it um, just to see how easy or difficult it is to split Polaris. Um, So I like that one. And I I find, you know, Polaris is a decent indicator of seeing conditions as well. Um, And, and, you know, I, I kind of think it's good to pick one or two double stars that you look at frequently um, that are good indicators of seeing, because if you look at them frequently, you'll get to know their slight differences when the seeing is, you know, good to bad to in between. Um, so I like Polaris a lot. Um, I do like Almac a lot. Um, even though Alberio isn't technically a double star, that one's beautiful, like just to see the star colors there. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, the other one that I really, really like is uh, the double-double in Lyra. Um, I didn't speak too much to that, but um, again, it's two double star systems that are, you know, if you have a decent enough field of view, you can get both of them in the same field of view. But what's interesting I, is, oh, go ahead. Well, I didn't want to raise this, but we do have to address the business of the double-double being in Canada and all. <laughs> the, the Tim Hortons reference. So... In Canada, so for those, for many of our listeners that are in Canada, so in Canada, there's a a coffee shop, the most popular coffee shop for very affordable coffee of perhaps dubious quality um, (laughs) is uh, anyways, this establishment. And when you go in and order that the most Canadians will order a double, double, which is double cream, double sugar, um, and, and usually it means they, they double up on their visits to the dentist as well, I, I suppose. So um, any, anyhow, I'm, uh, I'm not one of those individuals anymore after, uh, after being introduced to, uh, to sort of uh, home uh, ground and, and brewed coffee and that. But uh, anyway, there's a plug. If, if, but if people do ever come to Canada, it's sort of requisite that, that you visit uh, the purveyor of, of this, this fine uh, coffee and, uh, and, and order a double-double just so, just so that you can, can experience it. So uh, anyhow, I, I had to mention that because it's sort of one of those funny things. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is, it is funny. And it, it is a kind of a funny Canadian reference. Um, but yeah, the double double through a telescope is, is quite amazing and uh, can be a little challenging. So that's, that's one I'd recommend that one. You probably do need a little bit more aperture um, in my 120 millimeter refractor, I can split them, uh, but I do need a little bit of power, uh, to put on them. Um, yeah. So I'll probably leave it at those ones. Yeah. Uh, some of the other double stars that I thought of just as, as you were, as you were chatting, um, sort of from the historical record, um, there are some that were listed even in Ptolemy, 
uh, mm. El, El Majest. Um, and in, in there, one of them was it's a V1 and V2 Sagittarii or the eye of the Sagittarius. And, uh, and they were seen as, as a cloudy uh, star uh, in the eye and described as, as such by Ptolemy and others. And uh, anyway, there, there is, there is a set and that's, that's sort of one of my interests. Now I'm not as interested so much in, in the double stars, but uh, I was thinking, <laughs> excuse me, as you were doing the presentation, like I really should, as I'm working on some of, some of my work and I, and I have been trying to, uh, to rectify this is, is to make sure that I, that I include more, more of those doubles because uh, certainly uh, it is uh, a different experience and, uh, and very enjoyable. Like you said, very approachable uh, even from, uh, from poorly uh, light polluted skies, you know, in a city or, or elsewhere. So uh, that is, that is one of those things that, uh, that I do have to do a little bit uh, more observing from, but yeah, I, I really am as, as shown in my lack of, uh, contribution in this podcast i really don't know that much about about the double stars uh so really do enjoy uh hearing it when when you talk about them and and you certainly have motivated me to go out and uh, and take a look at some double star sheens so i certainly appreciate that right on well you know um hopefully uh, some others can take a look at them and um maybe a good segue into our book giveaway yeah go for it yeah i was hoping you'd get there go for it so we are giving away a copy of the 2021 RASC Observer's Handbook, full of great references and information related to observing. Uh, if you are interested in throwing your name into the competition, or it's not a competition, it's just a draw. So if you're interested in, uh, in uh, potentially winning it, all that we ask is you email us at actualastronomy, or sorry, actualastronomy at gmail.com and uh, tell us about an observation uh, that you've had or send us a sketch, or tell us about an observation you'd like to do. And now that we've just talked about a bunch of double stars, um, yeah, I would love to hear maybe some double star observations, uh, but it's not limited to that. So yeah. um, if you send in um, an entry, uh, we'll do the draw early in January, and uh, well, we'll announce it on a future podcast. And sort of for, for sort of context is that I am uh, one of the contributing authors for the Observer's Handbook, and uh, what happens is I, uh, I get an editor's copy, um, which I use. And then often what I'll do is I'll gift uh, away my, my second copy. Um, and then this year, uh, because of uh, all the COVID restrictions uh, and not, not meeting up with as many new observers in person, and in fact, not meeting up with any, um, I was thinking, well, what, what shall I do with it this year? Usually I give it away to somebody in my class who shows a, a particular interest um, and then I, I had thought about doing that, but then um, my class is rather distributed. Um, they're, they're all over the place. Um, and the people that are kind of nearby, uh, I think already get copies or um, anyhow, that, then it becomes difficult because then how do I, um, you know, sort of fairly give it out in, in that way. So I thought, you know, maybe, maybe this year we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll give, it a, give it away this year. Uh, via the podcast and people can just uh, just write in and, and participate in that manner. And uh, we've received quite a few observations so far. It's, it's pretty exciting, Shane, to just receive uh, these observations. Some people have, have written these beautifully long and detailed, like I think one person or maybe more than one person had kind of said, hey, sorry for the long email. I'm like, no, I love reading this stuff. This is really amazing to get people's observations in our inbox uh, frequently. Um, that's really exciting. And then I think sort of our, 
our, uh, you know, perhaps our evil conspiracy into all this is I, I think we'll probably end up doing uh, an episode early in the new year um, and talk about the observations uh, that people sent us. I think, I think that would be a lot of fun. And um, yeah. it just, it really is interesting. The thing that I think interests me most is um, the variety of observations from people and um and just the the experience level like i was really surprised and it's also this sort of a funny thing i I don't we don't have that much time left i want to go into it too far but um i found it really interesting that we we do have people that consider themselves sort of quote unquote beginners or, or or extreme novices and then we have people that are very clearly like i mean i think there's people out there shane it seems like that are even much more uh advanced amateur astronomers than us that are listening to us so i was like ooh, like really gonna start being a little bit more more uh, well researched and careful there at least on my end of things um because some people are very very experienced that are listening to us um but then the other and i've been communicating with one individual over over email or, or a few individuals i should say um and then sometimes people will refer to themselves like as sort of these uh rank beginners um and that there's some sort of almost like hierarchy in, in the sort of observing and, and there really isn't uh, if you're kind of going out and doing this uh, you're sort of part and parcel um, with with everybody else and uh, and there's not really much of a hierarchy sort of in, in the the observing ranks um, yeah. not not so much anyway and it's funny like some people will say hey I'm just a beginner but uh, you know I'm, I'm having trouble picking out Sinusabius on Mars I'm using such a such a telescope but this is like well like, uh, you know, like you're pretty good observer. Like, I, I don't know yeah. if I would say that's like a rank beginner or somebody like that. So yeah. It, yeah. it's just, it's really, really interesting to get all, all these, uh, all these entries. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I see you've got yeah. the list up there now and it's, it's growing every day. Yeah. Pretty yeah. Cool. And, and one of the things that I love about this is when, um, oh geez, this, this goes back a long time, Chris, but I was president of the local astronomy club. And I think you were vice president or something on the executive and um, the way we would start, so we would have a monthly meeting and the way we would start off the monthly meeting with all of the members is what have you observed? And then mm-hmm. we would just do kind of a round table and everybody would talk about the things they've observed. And that was by far the favorite, my favorite part of every meeting was just hearing about people observing because not only do I kind of live vicariously through some of that, but some, some of those observations inspire me to, to observe, you know, mm. because I want to see what they've looked at because it sounds really interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, selfishly, that's kind of this book giveaway too, is I just, I like to hear about other people's observations because it yeah. motivates me. Yeah, it's really fun. And there was one, I told you this, but I, I didn't send it out. And I, I can't remember, and my apology, I think, I think I remember who the individual individual was, but it doesn't matter, I suppose, because um, I was having this super busy day and there was all this stuff going on. I just, I just didn't feel like going out. And then um, you were like, hey, we got this observation from a listener and you sent it across. And it was it was very long. In fact, I think that's the one where the person was like apologizing for this really long email. I think there was other emails that were coming in as well while I was reading this. And I was like, you know what? I just want to go out. And like this really inspired me to kind of literally get off the sofa and and go out and do some astronomy. And I was just really surprised by that because that was sort of a very happy, unanticipated um, result of doing this podcast that I kind of thought like maybe we would kind of be motivating people more so um, than people motivating us to go observing but it's actually almost been mm-hmm. the opposite from my from my standpoint you know where where I'm like oh I've had a long day and I'm really tired I just want to sit on the sofa and then I'm like 
And this person sent these beautiful like observations and just describing what they were using and how they were observing. And it was pretty long, but I just loved reading it. I was reading it after dinner. I'm like, I'm just going to set up my little scope tonight and, and go out. And I didn't do like a big long session, but I went out for like 15 or 20 minutes. And, and I'd already been observing a lot at that point in time. Um, so, you know, it wouldn't have been much to take a night off anyway, but um, I kind of needed some recreation that day, I think. And uh, anyway, it, it was really good. I was really happy. Uh, to have had that experience and very very appreciative of people who do do send in those um those observations very cool very very cool yeah yeah totally agree and hopefully we you know we get more keep keep sending them in folks all right well thanks so much shane thank you chris thank you everyone for listening we hope you enjoyed the show if you would like to ask us questions or leave feedback you can find us on twitter we are at actual astronomy or you can email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. And if you would like to support the podcast with a donation, uh, we are selling merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash actualastronomy. We wish you all clear and dark skies.